Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Tammy Wingfield. I have the honor of uh, being part of the hospitality mission here at church. I also have the honor this morning of reading our scripture that Pastor Scott will be giving us a message from. John 11, 17 through 44. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, he said, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Tammy. I appreciate that. If you guys don't have your Bibles out yet, go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. I want you to be there too, because uh, this is God's word for all of us today. 
and I, we, we got 30, almost 30 verses to go through, so uh, uh, we got a lot to cover. I'm thinking today is very much like a hike, right? When you go on a hike, usually you hike to a certain destination, right? And it's like the, the, the climax of the hike. But along the way, you get some really cool views of different things. Today is like a hike in the text. And I probably just lost half of you because maybe you don't like hiking. But I love hiking. Um, but either way, it's like we, we know where we're headed. But don't stop to miss the beauties of what we're seeing along the way, okay? So let's, let's keep going through our text. Today's sermon is titled, Truth, Tears, and Toppling Tyrants. You can see how we're going to be seeing so much and we only came into the story about a quarter of the way, maybe a third of the way through it. Last week, we had the first part of the story. So let me kind of recap that for you a little bit. Lazarus is sick. His sisters are worried. They send a message to Jesus. Jesus gets the message. He says this. He says, this sickness does not end in death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be revealed through it or glorified through it. And so he, uh, and one of the things, the dynamics that we found last week is that Jesus was really in love with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. He loved them deeply. And we got to this passage where it says, out of that love, motivated by that love, he waited. He didn't run urgently to them. He paused and he waited. In fact, it says he probably, I think he waited like two days. And we had to reconcile with this understanding that sometimes God's love for us isn't exactly what we expect it to look like. We had to submit ourselves and humble ourselves to how God chooses to love us, not just simply how we expect him to love us. And so we're, we're in this story. We get to this point where Jesus waits, and we kind of had some application for us when we enter into crisis, right? When we're in a crisis moment, right, the first thing that you need to remember, especially taken from this story, is you need to recognize that God already sees you. Remember, he already knew Lazarus and what was going on with Lazarus. He didn't need the notice. He got it, but he didn't need it. He was not lost to Jesus' sight. So first, you need to recognize God already sees you. Secondly, you need to remember he unconditionally loves you. When you're in a crisis moment, sit and reflect on his love for you because that crisis is not a sign that you've been cut off from his love, as we talked about in Romans 8. And then as we're in this crisis moment, yes, you need to request his unlimited aid. You should be going to him constantly asking for your help. And then finally, ultimately, you resign yourself over to his higher will because he might be working plans that you have no clue about. And here we see the sisters come to realize that he's got different plans than they were expecting. And so if last week, if, if just the first third of the passage was kind of like our part in crisis moments, in unexpected moments, then this week is Jesus' heart for us in those crisis moments. So if last week was our part, this week is his heart. And, and so what we find is after a determined amount of time, when Lazarus actually dies, Jesus is like, let's go. He goes to Bethany. He arrives in Bethany Four days after Lazarus' death, you can see that was one of the first things that gets mentioned in the passage. He arrives four days after. Now, this was by no accident. Uh, the, the early Jews, they were, uh, even some of the rabbis were a bit superstitious. I don't know about you, but I'm only a little stitious. These Jews were superstitious. And 
they were superstitious because they had this belief that when someone dies, their soul hovers over the body, waiting for an attempt or an opportunity to re-enter into it. But as soon as that soul sees the body decomposing, change color, start to smell maybe, that soul departs after three days. Now, that's not biblical, that's just their superstitions. But the understanding was after, at day four, there's no way this guy's coming back. It's a done deal, the dude is dead dead. He just, he can't get more dead than that. There's no turning back from this point. Now, this is significant. I think Jesus, I think possibly understanding this this superstition that was recorded in different rabbionic teachings, it was significant he waited until day four to show up because he didn't want the Jews excusing this miracle as part of their superstition. He wanted all the glory. And so he waits to day four. And then we see in verses 18 through 19, uh, in, in our text today, verses 18 through 19, that a lot of Jews came down from Jerusalem because Bethany was just about two miles away. A lot of Jews came down into Jerusalem or into Bethany to grieve and to mourn with the sisters. This was actually custom. This was pretty normal. Like a large group showing up at a family's house who just lost a loved one is a very common thing. In fact, you can see it in, tr- in, in cultures all over the world. In fact, one of the things you can see all over the world is they, uh, uh, they have paid grievers. Sometimes, I mean, so we can, sometimes it happens here, sometimes it happens in the world today. People will be paid to go to someone's house and cry and weep with them. And so we might have some of that going on here, but, but either way, there's a large group gathered in Mary and Martha's home, and they're all weeping. Try to put yourself into Mary and Martha's shoes. Just imagine Imagine being there with them. Imagine being them, actually. Imagine seeing their brother take a turn for the worse. The sickness isn't normal. Something else happens. It's probably a bit more violent than we would expect. And we don't have the medical care or the medicine at this time to to, to care for it like we do today. Imagine the fear starting to well up. Imagine the, the... the sounds you start to hear as breathing gets harder and harder. Imagine sending word to Jesus about Lazarus. And you wait, and the sounds get more horrifying, and you wait, and you keep looking out the window. You're wondering, when's Jesus going to show up? Another day passes, he's a no-show, and the sounds get worse. The body looks more, uh, more, more, more ill than ever before. And then, uh, for those of you who have been around death in this final moments, you know the death rattle. You hear that. Mar- Martha and Mary hear his breathing through that, and then it stops. And Jesus never showed up. Jesus is a no-show. I'm guessing Martha and Mary aren't the only ones who ever struggled with a moment or an event in their life when Jesus didn't show up like they expected him to. Have you ever had a moment in your life when 
Jesus didn't show up on the scene like you had asked him to, like you thought he would. He, he didn't come like you asked him to. He didn't heal like you thought he would. That's where Mary and Martha are right here in this story. Jesus didn't show up. And yet Jesus, Jesus is not scared of their confusion. He's not scared of their questions. He can handle them. And instead of distancing himself, like most of us would when we're like, uh-oh, they got a problem with me, I'm, I'm just going to linger back. No, he actually, no, we're going. I'm going to them. He draws near to them. And he makes his way, in the, and, and they find out that he's coming, and Martha leaves the house. And before he can get into the city, Martha meets with Jesus, and then later we see Mary meet with Jesus. And they both come with the exact same complaint. What do they say? They say, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you had shown up, Jesus, we wouldn't be in this mess. Most likely, that was something for the last two days after Lazarus' death, before Jesus showed up. That's something that the sisters kept saying to one another. Man, if he had only been here, if he had only showed up, Lazarus wouldn't have died. I want you to take a moment, though, and look at that statement from the two sisters. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Is that a statement of incredible doubt and pessimism? No. What are the, that's a statement of faith. If, if Jesus had actually been there, <laughs> he could have healed. <laughs> like, this is their expectation of Jesus, that he would have healed because they had known he could do it. Everybody knew he could do it. That was the word on the street. Jesus can heal. And they were bold enough to trust his heart that if he had been there, he wouldn't have died. That's a statement of faith. But sometimes our greatest statements of faith can be played with a lot of pain and heartbreak. Because there is heartbreak here. There is pain in this. Yes, if you had showed up, he would have lived. We believe that about you. <laughs> but you didn't. He didn't show up. Lazarus died. And so, so Jesus, dealing with this very confusing place in their hearts, <laughs> does, does, does he just like a blanket statement say the same thing and do the same thing with both of them as if that's the response that everybody should get when they're in confusion? No, no, he he responds differently to each of these sisters. To Martha, it's one way. To Mary, it's another why? Well, you remember that Christmas passage that talks about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 9, where it, starts out, it talks about those four titles of this Messiah, and he is to be a wonderful counselor. He is a wonderful, in other words, a wonder-working counselor. It was prophesied of old, and we see that on full display here. 
Jesus is a wonderful counselor because what we see him do with Martha and then with Mary, we see that he is able to speak lofty truths and cry lowly tears. We see with one, he gives the ministry of truth in their grief. And with another, he gives the ministry of tears. So let's first talk about the ministry of truth because when we are in deep grief and loss, sometimes we don't need just everything to be back made right because that's not how this works. What we need is truth in our hearts. For that to be our confidence, we need our faith built. And so we see Jesus very tenderly in the ministry of truth with Martha here. Look at verse 21. Martha goes to Jesus and she makes her statement that they both make. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Did you see her increased faith? Did you see, did you see that she still has this confidence in Jesus? She says, even now, even after what I've experienced, even after what we've gone through, I still believe that whatever you ask from your Father in heaven, you're gonna get. That's, that's, now, she's not thinking of resurrection. She's not thinking of what we know the story's gonna end with. That's not her thoughts. She's thinking that, that she still has this confidence in Jesus. She still has this, she recognizes that Jesus has this peculiar relationship with her father, his father in heaven. That whatever he asks, he'll have from the father. And so Martha makes that statement. Yeah, whatever you ask, Jesus, I'm gonna, obviously she's resigning herself over to his care. (laughs) She's humbling herself to his will. Whatever you ask will be given to you And what's Jesus' response to that? Your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. He says that in verse 23. Guys, uh, for us, we know, again, we know the story. We know how it goes. Put yourself in Martha's shoes. She has no clue what to expect. She's in the the bottomless pit of despair. (laughs) She has no clue what to think. Your brother will rise again. That's like, have you ever seen a trailer for a movie? The movie just looks absolutely like epic, but at the same time, it's so confusing that you can't figure it out from the trailer. It's like this, this statement is like a trailer that's pointing to this awesome movie, but we don't know what it means. So verse 24, Martha shows us that she's kind of thinking about one thing. When he says this, your brother will rise again? Okay, verse 24, look at what she says. Yeah, I I know he's going to rise again. He's going to rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Okay. Is that all we need to know? No, there's more. You see, Martha is uh, what's called a a Pharisee, right? There were two kind of groups in Jewish culture or Jewish religion at the time. There were Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees believed in a resurrection. They believed in what you might know as the afterlife, in the coming kingdom, in life in this future kingdom, right? The Sadducees did not. They did not believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in life after this life. It was to the grave. No wonder they're so sad. Isn't that the easiest way to remember it? That's how I have to remember it, okay? I'm surprised I didn't get any booze. Don't bring any, because I don't need them this morning. Now, you see, her faith as a Pharisee 
for this idea of rising again is in this future event, this future eschatological event. It's the resurrection on the last day. And if you don't know anything about that resurrection, my goodness, get in your Bibles and read about it. It is beautiful. But she's having this faith in this future resurrection, and she's not wrong. <laughs> it's, she's not wrong with it. It's just her thinking isn't complete. Right? Because in, in a similar way, you and I, uh, in our faith, in our understanding of our security before the Lord, our assurance before the Lord, we can put our faith in, a, in an event in our lives. So we can say, hey, well, well, how do you know that you're right with the Lord? Well, I went down on an altar call after a pastor gave a, a sermon, right? Or I prayed a prayer after a pastor told me to repeat a prayer. Or I had this event in my life and I went, I went and got baptized, right? We can put our confidence in a particular event in our lives when ultimately our confidence is never in an event in ourselves. It's in a, it's in a person. It's in Jesus himself. And so when you get to the gates of heaven and God's asking, hey, why should I let you in? You don't say, well, I prayed a prayer when I was three years old. You say, my hope is in Jesus, the person that you sent to rescue me. So we put our confidence in the person, and that's what Jesus is doing here. Her hope is in an event. Jesus wants her hope in him. And so what we have here is we come across the fifth I am statement in the gospel of John. For those of you who are new to the gospel, uh, there are seven signs, miracles that Jesus does that point to his character, and there are seven I am statements in the gospel of John. We've already covered four. He talks about how he is the bread of life. I'm going to put it as him. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate or the door, depending on your translation. And I am the good shepherd. And today we get to the fifth one here. He says, I am the what? The resurrection and the life. You know, Jesus' response to Martha shows exactly that he is God. He is the resurrection and the life. Resurrection, the Greek word anastasis. Anastasis meaning to raise up. You see, Jesus is saying here that the resurrection isn't an event that just happens at the end of the time. No, no, it's a person named Jesus, the son of God from Nazareth. And, and you know, he doesn't just simply say, I, no, I will cause the resurrection at the last day. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I will bring about the resurrection at the last day. No, Jesus himself is how dead things come back to life. He is the resurrection. And not only is he how dead things come back to life, but he's also how things live forever. Right? This is, this is, he is the resurrection and the life. He is the anastasis and the zoe. It's the Greek word there. It means the eternal life. We hear all about it in the Gospel of John. It's the abundant, full life. It's the forever life. So he is how things come alive and stay alive. Because if you can remember, we saw in the beginning of the Gospel of John that he is how everything that was created came about into existence. John 1, 3 not a thing that exists was made without him. Everything that was made was made through him. He is how we get our source of life. But he's not just a source of life. He's not just a way of life. He is life itself. And he is our forever life. 
In fact, that's kind of what, we're, what we prayed for, right? That's kind of what happens in the Christian's life, is that we slowly diminish and he greatly increases in our lives. We see that in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but it's Christ who now lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is part of the Christian life. This is what happens to our lives. The mortal life of self diminishes and the forever spiritual eternal life that Christ gives increases because he is the resurrection and the life. Now, he, he, he follows this on. He explains what this means in verse 25 and 26. Take a look. He says, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Okay. How many of you read that part and you're like, oh, uh, what? It can get confusing. The first part makes sense. The first part we can probably compute pretty easily, right? It's the second part that gets tough. So the first part, if we die... If we die having believed in Jesus, we will live. Okay, that's the resurrection. That's, we will rise to eternal life. Makes sense. That part, nah, check that box. What about the second part? That gets confusing. He says, everyone who lives and believes in me will what? Never die? But, but we, just, we, we know several people who have, who have believed in Christ and still died. What does this mean? You can find this hard to compute. So, so there's some commentators who say that, that the, what he's talking about here is that the, the believer, the one who already enjoys resurrection life, because guys, resurrection life isn't waiting for you upon your death. You have it now. It's yours now because you have been crucified with Christ. You have been born again. You are a new creature. Christ now lives in you and you have eternal life. And that started the moment you were born again. It's not waiting for you. You have it now. And so in that sense, that new life that you have, that eternal life, will never die again. It'll never die. It can never fade. The ordinary mortal life ebbs away. The life that Jesus gives will never end. Now, uh, I I would also say that if that doesn't help, there might be something in view with what Revelation 20 calls as the second death. Like, because that's the ultimate death, that's ultimate separation God for the rest of eternity, right? The lake of fire, uh, but, but believers are kept from that second death. It's, it's in fact, in Revelation 3, it says the second death will not hurt those who have conquered. Anyways, all, all of this, all of Jesus' interactions with Martha, he is centralizing all of her theology, all of her eschatology, in other words, all of her beliefs about God, all of her beliefs about the end times, all of her, all of her understanding about resurrection life. He is centralizing all of it into him. We can't picture resurrection life without him. We have to have him. So he centralizes all of it within him, and then he, he, he draws it to the logical conclusion that's required here. If Jesus is the anastasis, if he is the zoe, if he's the resurrection and the life, then our confidence, Martha's faith, has to be in him. That's why he says in verse 26, what? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Guys, in Martha's overwhelming grief, the wonderful counselor is inviting her heart 
to trust in him. Inviting her heart to believe in the truth about Jesus that will radically alter what she's experiencing within her own spirit, within her own heart. He is inviting her to not have her faith or confidence in a future event, but in the person and work of Jesus right before her. To trust him. Maybe that's some of the work that Jesus wants to do in you right now. Your grief has overwhelmed you for so long. And the doubts have kept you from from believing God's word in some ways or made it confusing or muddled up the waters a little bit. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Look at Martha's response. Verse 27. Yes, Lord. In other words, yes, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Some of, you, some of you are very familiar with grief. Some of you have been in grief for a long time. Some of you have been in grief, deep grief, for just a few weeks or months now. Those of you who know grief, while you've had your relationship with Jesus, I'm guessing you've had a moment or multiple moments where you're wrestling, you're in pain, and you're praying, and you're bringing your your heartache before the Lord. And all he does is assure you of who he is, and that's enough for you. And you experience this radical peace that you can't explain. But for some reason, your heart's not in turmoil too much anymore (laughs) because you know who Jesus is. That's the ministry of truth. Directing our eyes to He is the way, the truth, and the life. Directing the eyes of our hearts onto Him. So Martha's faith, her confidence, we find here has shifted. It takes a a shift, and and she's no longer in an eschatological event, a resurrection day. She is thinking and believing in the Son of God, Jesus. Now, we find out later that Martha still has no clue what Jesus is going to (laughs) do. She doesn't know what to expect here. All she knows is she's trusting him. And sometimes that's the only thing you can do in grief and in crisis, right? But then Jesus ministers to Mary, and his is a ministry of tears with her. So we find out after Martha's exchange with Jesus, her counseling moment, she goes back, she calls for Mary, Mary comes out, Mary goes to find Jesus. We also find out in the story that the Jews thought that Mary was leaving to go to the tomb to grieve there, and so they leave with her, they follow her out. So there's this massive group of people following Mary. Mary goes outside of the city and comes to Jesus, and she comes to him and says the exact same thing. Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And this is in front of all these people with the Savior. 
And Jesus, it says in this story, he sees her tears, her, her crying. She, he, he sees the crowd's tears, all of the people there crying. And he, our Savior, feels something too. He feels something very deeply in his spirit. Look at what it says. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Now, I am, I am going to just say this. Uh, I, I've looked across a lot of the translations and I've, I've found that none of them are quite willing to take the plunge into what this actually means or more closely to what it means. Actually, ironically, the KJV gets a little closer than the rest of them. Uh, the, 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 none of the major translations seem to be willing to take the plunge into something, uh, into translating this word here. It's ibrio my oh my. And, 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 and they might include something as a footnote, but, but that Greek word, deeply moved in his spirit, the Greek word there is actually in other Greek texts, it's used of a horse snorting angrily. Of, of human beings, this Greek word is invariably suggesting anger. It's outrage. It's emotional indignation. So if you, if you want to get something a little bit more closely there, you could circle that word and, and you could say, he's angry. He's outraged. He is angry deep within his spirit. He's troubled by what he's seeing. Now, now the reason why, I, I, you know, I, I'm actually just guessing here, I think one of the reasons why that translations aren't willing to go that far and, and, and say that is because it gets really confusing. It can be really confusing because then you ask, well, why is he angry? Like, is he, huh? Is he, are, why is he mad at them crying? <laughs> right? They, should, what? Like, he's about to cry. Why is, he, why is he crying? Or why is he angry at their crying? Is he angry because they're not believing in him? No, I don't think that's it. Is he, is he angry at God? Well, he'd have to be angry at himself if he were angry at God. That doesn't work either. I won't often tell you to do this, but put yourself in Jesus' shoes. The creator of all things. The one who infinitely loves all that he's created. Everything was good when he made it. Very good. And our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided to rebel. And into the created order of things that was once very good came a tyrant brought about by our sin, it was death. Jesus is seeing the consequences of what's happening with the death of Lazarus, and he is outraged. Not at them, he's outraged at death. He sees what the enemy has done what this tyrant is doing to those he loves and what he's created, what was once very good and now is ruled under the, the tyranny of death. You know, a lot of you want a, 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 a Jesus that has nice little rainbows popping out of his ears and, and he's nice and comfortable and he's, he's peaceful and he's like going like this the whole time, right? We, we want a Jesus that's always gentle. We want a Jesus that's always loving, what if Jesus wasn't outraged at death? I don't think he would have climbed up on that cross. What if he was apathetic? What if he said, oh, okay. Hmm. 
you and I need a Jesus who can be outraged. We need a Jesus who can get angry at the things that deserve anger, that deserve justice. And praise God that our Jesus gets angry here. It shows us that in our, in our experience of the fallenness of the world, there are things that we can be angry at. Righteous things, right? Like we gotta be careful with that because it can get so muddled and, 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 and sticky. But he gets angry at death. And what does he do? He asks them to show him where Lazarus' body has been laid. Why? Because in his anger, he's gonna go wage war. And we'll see what he does. But before we get to the tomb, Jesus, in his ministry of tears, shows another emotion. He shows grief. In verse 35, you guys should know it. What did he do? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. See, what makes Jesus angry is the same thing that makes him weep. He's revolts by the death, the tyrant of death that has come in and plagued his creation. And so in Martha's experience, he spoke truth about his character that showed he is God. In Mary's exchange, Jesus weeps, which shows him that he's man. We have the God-man, the wonderful counselor, caring for these sisters. This is God crying. This is God experiencing the same pain of tears that we experience from the fallenness of the world. There's a quote that I often share at um, memorial services, often at the graveside, and it's one from Charles Spurgeon. A Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. But Jesus wept. He knows what it's like. He knows the pain, the sorrow, the late nights, the sleepless nights. He's able to sympathize so he can wipe away the tears. He's able because he really is the wonderful counselor. Now here's, here's something that you and I need to wrestle with at this point. Jesus knows his plans to raise Lazarus from the dead. You and I both know that's how the story ends. We know Jesus had determined that before the creation of time. And he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why on earth, knowing the future resurrection that was about to happen in like two minutes, knowing that he can do that, why would he take the time to weep? Why would he grieve? You know, a, um, a pastor, Reverend Chad Scruggs, on March 5th earlier this year, he preached a sermon to his church family on this very passage, Jesus wept. And he asked that same question, and he asked questions like, how do we face death in our world, especially untimely deaths, without the pain and confusion of death leading us into, into despair? Well, he gave them the answer. He answered it. He said, it's, how, do we, how do we do that? How do we, how do we explain this? It's knowing that Jesus himself is in it with us, that he is in it with those who mourn, that God himself weeping with those who weep, that God's not pretending that grief is somehow imaginary or that grief should be hidden or avoided, but he's in righteousness joining his tears to ours 
So in other words, he looked, this pastor looked at the model of Jesus and said, because Jesus wept knowing the coming resurrection that was about to happen, it gives us full permission to, to, to grieve, even though we have this future hope. Now, the story with Reverend Scruggs is not done. He preached that on March 5th this year, and three weeks later, a gunman entered into the school that the church facilitated and took the lives of three of their staff members and three nine-year-old students, one of the students being his very own daughter. If you haven't tuned in yet, this is the Nashville shooting that happened earlier this year. Three weeks before that disaster, we have a pastor caring for his flock, not knowing that he's preparing his church to experience some of the greatest pain that they'll ever know. He himself, knowing the greatest pain that I could ever imagine, the loss of a child. And here he is. He's saying, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to weep. It's okay to be angry at death. It's okay to have sadness for a while. In fact, we see here that God's doing it with us. We're, we're, we're as a church, we're told it, we're commanded to weep with those who weep. And here we have Jesus obeying that command from himself. You know, if anything, we as Christians ought to be more familiar with grief than anyone else because you and I know what was once created good. You and I know what, what, what will be coming at the end of the day. And you and I know that this isn't the way it's supposed to be right now. And so you and I, knowing what was was, what will come, we know grief now. Because we know it's going to get better. As one of my good friends constantly tells me, the best is yet to come. You see, the thing is, we as the church, we haven't been taught how to lament well. We as the church are told that everything should be rainbows and unicorns and everything should be fluffy and lovey-dovey and, and nothing should be messy. No, no like we as a church, we ought to know how to lament. We ought to be a people who are on the earth, a remnant of people who know how to lament to the Lord that this is not the way it should be. In fact, we have in our Bible a whole book about lamenting. Guess what its name is? Lamentations. Go read that one too. It's worth it. But you see, what's different about our grief is that we can grieve with the hope. We, 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 can, we can experience sadness and sorrow, but we're not stuck in it. We know there's going to be a dawning coming. <laughs> and, and so we don't, now we don't have to grieve. Uh, it, it, our grief is, a, is of, of a different category. It's under the category of hope. And, and that's what we see in First Thessalonians 4. It's, it's an incredible passage. This is one that I clung to when we were miscarrying three kids in a row. First Thessalonians 4.13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep. In other words, those who are in Christ who have died. Right? Concerning those who are asleep. So that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Why? Because if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
(laughs) In the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It's coming. (laughs) So we don't have to grieve without a sense of hope. In fact, if we grieve without any kind of hope, then we're not grieving Christian. (laughs) We're not grieving in the light of the gospel. Because there will be a day that that sky peels open, our Savior will come open, he'll come riding on that white horse, he'll be clothed in white, there's going to be fire in his eyes, sword coming out of his mouth, and he'll undo everything bad and make it untrue. So we have a hope. Death is not the permanent reality for us. Man, this gospel is so good. Oh boy. Now we see Jesus after his ministry to Mary, his ministry of tears. We see him get angry again. He's moved in his spirit. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. He is on fire. And we find out that the tomb is a typical tomb. It's got a stone in front of it, uh, just like we picture Jesus' tomb when he was raised. And Lazarus' body is in there. And verse 39, Jesus says, remove the stone. By the way, if you haven't noticed, we're getting to the end of the hike. (laughs) Remove the stone. And Martha, still just kind of confused, protests and says, Jesus, you know, he's there's going to be a stench. His body's been decomposing. And if you want a little treat, go read in the KJV. It says, it it translated that she stinketh. Never would have imagined the Bible saying stinketh, but it stinketh. Verse 40, Jesus responds to her protest. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Remember, he invited her to believe in him, but also in verse four, he said uh, that this sickness does not end in death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God might be glorified through it. So we have the combination there. The sickness doesn't end that way. It ends in glory. So Jesus, he's here, he prays, he thanks the father. He does that so that everyone around him will know that he's got a special relationship with the father and that, that all of these people would believe in Jesus upon what they're about to see. And in verse 43, oh man, here it is. You ready? After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I'm pretty sure if he hadn't said Lazarus before that, every grave would have emptied. And what happens next? Verse 44 is one of the most ironic verses. (laughs) The dead man came out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips, with his face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Can you, again, so put your shoes, uh, put, the, put, put the Martha and Mary shoes back on for a second. You're there, you're at the graveside, you have all of this horrifying experience with, with death, with the, with, with, with the experience of losing your brother. You have all of this confusion of grieving and loss, and you have all of this anger. You're like, why didn't Jesus show up? You have all of this here, and it's still kind of lingering. And you see Lazarus come out of the tomb. Doesn't all of that confusion and grief and heartbreak, what happens to it? It vanishes at the resurrection. 
the moment Lazarus kind of waddles out of the tomb, all of that is gone. Joy rushes in. So that's, imagine being Martha and Mary. Imagine being Lazarus. <laughs> you're up in heaven, you've got your mansion, you're kind of setting out the living room and you've got your pictures up, right? And you're doing all this stuff. And you're like, this is the good life. Why, why did I take so long to get here? And you hear, he goes and he opens the door and the angels are there. Uh, so there's, uh, we gotta send you back. <laughs> Jesus is calling for you. No! Right? Like, and Lazarus is like, gets out of the grace. Why'd you bring me back? Right? That was so good. I'm not actually posing that. That's actually what happened. I just, that's how my mind goes. But how do we land this story? What's the whole point of it? Lazarus has been raised to life again. Is this story about resurrection? Kind of. But this, this resurrection is like a firefly's light compared to the radiance of the resurrection that's coming like the sun. Right, so this isn't ultimately about that. It kind of gives us a very small picture of what's coming. Is it about how to grieve? There's some of that in there. You should take some of that too. It's about that. It's about, it's about uh, knowing truth in, in grief and sorrow. Yes, it's, all of these things are true, but what's it ultimately about? It's ultimately about Jesus, the resurrection and the life, triumphing over death. Because you and I have to realize something. Death is something that sin deserves. Or sorry, death is the just punishment that sin deserves. And Jesus is promising to undo that. If it's true that death is the just sentencing for sin, but his objective is to destroy and topple the tyrant of death, how can he do that without also doing us in? How can he destroy death without destroying us? Because we, we the wages of sin is death, right? We, 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 we believe that death came about because of, a, of sin, right? It's the just sentence. It's the, it's the deserved punishment. How can Jesus destroy death without destroying us? It's in his own death. You see, if you can remember, there's a part of the first part that we didn't actually go through. The disciples protested Jesus going back to Bethany, back to Judea, because there were Jews who were going to do what to him? Stone him, kill him, end his life. And they said, no, you shouldn't go, but Jesus is determined. He knew the risk he took in coming to, to do this incredible miracle, this great sign and what happens, you haven't read it yet, but verse 53 in, in, in this part, it says, so from that day on, the day that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they plotted to kill Jesus. This ultimately is the final sign that did Jesus in. This is the, the, the final part that ultimately was going to lead to Jesus being in the grave. Because the only way for him to get us out of death's grip was to put himself into it. The only way to stop our funerals is to cause his own. 
And he deliberately goes and brings Lazarus out of the grave, bringing Lazarus to life, triggering ultimately his death. Because from here on out, it's the private ministry and it's him on the cross. It's from here he goes to the cross ultimately. So we see that we get life in his death. Lazarus got life, which triggered Jesus' death, which set the pathway in order for Jesus to end up on the cross and in the tomb. So Jesus, in anger, raises Lazarus from the dead because he's saying to death, come on, destroy me. You're gonna sign your own death warrant when you do. So out of all of this, I hope there's been help with, with the ministry of truth, with the ministry of, of tears, with the hope of resurrection life. And if, 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 you, if, you're, if, if you're hoping to understand more of who Jesus is and what he's planning to do, uh, like you need to know that. You need to know who Jesus is because he is the resurrection and the life. But for those of us who know who Jesus is and we've seen this, how can we any longer let the fear of death control us? It cannot have any kind of rain in our hearts anymore because look what he can do. He can be like, nah, undone. Watch this. So you and I as believers, looking at this and knowing the full story of the gospel, we can say to death, hey, the worst thing that you can possibly do to me, death, is the best thing that you can do for me. You think you're gonna unmake me? Oh, you're only gonna make me because I'm gonna be with my king. Don't let the fear of death control you. And also, I would just say, and I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller on this passage, and and he said it this way, and I think this is the best way to end this. If you can read this story and still have some limits on your allegiance to Jesus, then I don't think you know the real Jesus. Reading this story, we ought to remove all the limits that our allegiance to Jesus has we should be willing to say, yep, he gets every part, all of it, because he's the resurrection and the life. Let me pray for us. Father, I, uh, I adore you. We worship you. We believe that you are holy, good, and just. We thank you that you are a God who uh, can, can cry tears with us and feel our pain. We are thanking you that you are a God who can speak truth to us that we need so desperately in our hearts that helps us build our faith. And we thank you that you are a God who can rob the grave. We thank you that you are a God who sent your son to, to put himself into the grave so that we could come out of the grave, who went to the cross so that we wouldn't have to, who rose to life again so that we could have new life in him. And God, I pray for those in here who have not experienced that resurrection life today, that eternal life that Jesus offers, that he is, I pray that they would come to know him because after this story that is true, that is historical, God, I pray that today they could no longer stay away from you. I pray, Jesus, that if there's a soul in here today that is not yours, that it would not leave here today not being yours, that it would be yours today. God, I also pray for those of us who, who love you, who walked with you for many years, who are in seasons of grief. I pray that you would minister to us through truth and through tears. I pray that we would know how close you are and how truthful you are. And God, I also praise you that in all of our grief and all of our troubles, we have this constant hope 
that you are our resurrection and life. And I pray that you would raise dead things to life today, whether that's a dead soul or that's dead hope. I pray, Jesus, that every moment of our lives we would live in the confidence and the sure confidence and assurance that the person of Jesus is everything we need. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys would stand, I'd love to pray a prayer of benediction over you. But obviously, I know we touched on some heavy topics today. And I realize that this might have shaken you up a bit. If you need prayer, if you are somebody who is too acquainted with grief, uh, and you want truth, and you want somebody to cry with you, uh, we'll have our prayer team up here. Please come pray with them. Don't, like, please don't leave today. Let us be the church to you. Let us love on you well. Okay? Um, also, we're going to have refreshments out there. Thank you for putting that together, Tammy. And also, um, uh, something random. Uh, my family has an apple tree, and we lost big branches, and we have like a thousand apples that we need to get rid of. They're pre-baked, or they're, they're good for baking, so they're out there. Take some when you go, okay? Um, they're not fully ripe, so if you try to bite in one, it'll be tart uh, and sour. Maybe like a sermon today, but oh well. Uh, somebody asked, are you, uh, are you preparing people for a bad sermon today? Uh, if, if so, I'll expect apples to be thrown up here, okay? Let me pray this prayer of benediction over you from Ephesians 3. May Christ Jesus dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And all God's people said... Amen. Love you guys. Have an incredible week. Be blessed.